Well, it's a joy once again to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Esther, and so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 4. Um, two weeks ago, when we were last together, uh, looking at this passage, we saw that in chapter 3, Haman had begun to set up his plot to destroy all of the Jews. And so in chapter 4, we're going to see the response of the Jews and, of course, of Esther and, and Mordecai as well. So Esther chapter 4, and I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Esther chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Hear now the word of God. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree had reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Chathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Chathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Chathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Chathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, and may he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. O oh God, we thank you for all of your word. 
And we think especially this morning of the book of Esther. Lord, we pray for chapter 4 here today. We pray that your spirit would work through your word and that you would accomplish in us what you want to do. And we pray that your word would be spoken in spirit and in truth this morning and that it would penetrate all of our hearts. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. That was about um, about two weeks ago that we were last looking at Esther together. And uh, when we were together then looking at it, we looked at the very end of chapter 2 as well as uh, all of chapter 3. And we had seen that uh, at the very end of chapter 2 of Esther, uh, Mordecai had just saved the king's life. Right? He foiled a plot that was going to overthrow King Ahasuerus of Persia and uh, saved the life of the king. And the king knew who he was because Esther told him it was Mordecai who foiled this plot. And uh, then immediately at the beginning of chapter 3, we saw that Mordecai didn't get promoted as perhaps he should have been or you would expect him to be. But rather it was Haman, the Agagite, the descendant of the Amalekites. Haman gets promoted at the beginning of chapter 3 and becomes the second in command of the kingdom of Persia. And that became a problem for Mordecai because the king commanded that anyone who was around Haman needed to bow down and recognize his authority. And we saw last time that we were together that you know, uh, Mordecai didn't refuse to bow to Haman because Jews weren't allowed to bow down to kings. Uh, they were, and they did that quite frequently. They're allowed for that in the Old Testament. And it wasn't that Mordecai refused to bow because he was jealous of Haman's position. But rather, it's because Mordecai recognized a long-developed spiritual battle that was happening between Haman's descendants, the Amalekites, and God's people, the Israelites. Because the Amalekites were under the ban of God. They were supposed to be wiped out under King Saul. Saul disobeyed and did not wipe them all out. And so Haman, now ascending to the throne, uh, to the second in command, at least, of the kingdom of Persia, shows that God's enemies here symbolically are triumphing over his people. And Mordecai recognized that, and he refused to bow down for those reasons because he did not want to symbolically give a gesture that the seed of the serpent was going to overcome the seed of the woman. So this feud goes all the way back to Genesis 3. So Mordecai is very astute in his Old Testament and very astute theologically as to why he refused to bow down. But anyway, uh, in the rest of chapter 3 then we saw that because Mordecai did this, Haman finds out about it, he's not happy about it, and because he knows that this is not just a problem with Mordecai but with all of the Jews, Haman enacts a plot to kill all the Jews in all of the Persian Empire. And he bribes the king, a serious bribe, right? two-thirds of the entire tax revenue for the whole kingdom in order to make that happen, in order to get that legislation passed, to set a date on the calendar for all of the Jews in Persia to be slaughtered. And so we kind of ended on a bad note last time, where the Jews are in this horrible, perilous situation, and now they're going to need a mediator. They're going to need a savior. They're going to need someone to stand for them and between them and this great judgment that is coming upon them. Okay? And that's really what our text is about here this morning. Our main point that we're going to see in this passage is that God always provides a mediator. 
He always provides a mediator for his people to bring about salvation for them. And so we see that then as we sort of uh, outline this text in in, uh, two points. Firstly, we have the mourning of the Jews, and then we have the seeking of a mediator. Uh, So very, very simple. The mourning of the Jews and the seeking of a mediator. So let's look first at the mourning of the Jews, which is the first uh, five or the first four verses of chapter four. All right, so we end chapter three with Haman and the king sitting down to drink while the rest of the city of Susa, the capital, is in a, a ridiculous commotion because suddenly there's this law that's been posted in the bulletin board in Times Square saying, hey, we're going to kill all the Jews on this day. I mean, you can imagine the confusion and the chaos that that would cause. And so Mordecai, being an official in the kingdom of Persia, would be one of the first to hear about this law even before it gets posted. And so when Mordecai heard, this is verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Mordecai's uh, mourning here is not at all you know, unusual in the ancient world. This is actually a pretty standard way of expressing great mourning for these ancient Semitic people. And uh, the reason they did this was not so much to express mourning to you know, the government officials, although Mordecai certainly is doing that here because he's, you know, he's sort of protesting in front of the, the city gate, which is the city hall of this day. It's like the place where all, all the legislation was enacted and policies were debated and so on. So he is sort of protesting with the government here. But for the Jews, mourning and and being in sackcloth and ashes and so on wasn't just about appealing to earthly authorities. But it was really primarily and first and foremost about appealing to God. And so not only is it Mordecai that is protesting here and, and crying out in this great mourning apparel, but you've got Jews throughout the whole of the kingdom of Persia here doing this same thing. And what they're doing is they are crying out to God. Because what the Jews have in view here is not just, oh man, we're going to die. I mean, of course, they're thinking about that. Nobody wants to die. But really what they have in view are the promises of God. Because you remember, God promised to Abraham, through your descendants, I am going to bring the Messiah. And so the Jews here are thinking, well, if the king wipes us all out, there's not going to be any Messiah anymore. Messiah is not going to come. Uh, if, if the king destroys us, God's promises are in jeopardy. And so they're crying out to God, God, where are you? Where are your promises? Are you going to fulfill your promises to Abraham to bring the Messiah? Is the seed of the serpent going to overcome the seed of the woman? It's the cry of Genesis 3 here that they're giving. God, where are you? Now, I think there's also an element of these verses we need to recognize here, and that's this. Uh, there's a certain sense in which the Jews are not, strictly speaking, complete victims here. I mean, yes, their lives are in danger. Yes, they are uh, concerned about the promises of God. Yes, the king is going to kill them, according to this edict. But they're not strictly victims because there's a certain sense in which they actually brought this upon themselves. If you'll remember, uh, when Persia came and conquered Babylon, right, Israel was in exile in Babylon. That was their punishment. Exile is not vacation. Exile is punishment for their disobedience when they were a kingdom. 
And when Persia came and conquered Babylon, the king of Persia, Cyrus the Great, said, Hey, Israelites, you can go back to Canaan. Go back, rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem. I'll even fund some of these things. Wait, actually, I think that was Darius. But anyway, the the kingdom is funding these things. They're funding the rebuilding of the temple. They're sending help. And that was God saying, exile's over. Go back to the promised land. Worship me in the temple. And that's where Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, they're rebuilding the temple, rebuilding all of the city. They're doing all this stuff to bring back Israel. And there were a lot of Jews that went back and helped with that. But part of the problem here is that many of the Jews decided to remain in Persia. They liked living in pagan culture. They liked living, in this case, for Mordecai and Esther and their families, they liked living not only in Persia and in pagan culture, but they liked living in the capital city. And they liked taking pagan names for themselves. And so there's a certain sense here in which if God's people had just done what they were supposed to do, if the Jews had gone back to Canaan and worshipped the way they were supposed to, Mordecai and Esther wouldn't have been in this position. Mordecai wouldn't have had to come before Haman. Haman wouldn't have been enacting this great plot. And none of this would have happened. So there's a very real sense here in which we can say that the Jews are in a horrible situation where the date of their death has been set on the calendar. And yet this has happened really because of their own stubbornness and their own refusal to listen to God and worship Him as He wanted. Rather, they liked to be like the nations around them. And so you can see this is basically the story of Israel once again because this is exactly what they do throughout the whole Old Testament. But this isn't just what the Israelites do either, right? Because this is actually what God's people in old times like to do, including you and including me, right? We like to be like the pagan nations. We like our sin. We like our stubbornness. We don't like to listen to God. We're at war with ourselves, Paul says in Romans. This is something God's people always struggle with. And so the mourning of the Jews here is a mourning that says not only, man, we're going to die, please save us, but it's a mourning that says, God, we are sorry. We're, We're starting to recognize here this maybe wasn't the best plan. And so the the destruction being brought upon them is a result of judgment. It's a result of them not listening to God. It's a sinful, bad situation that they brought upon themselves. And it's in that context that God provides a mediator for his people. And in Esther here, God's going to provide a mediator for them to save them from this situation. And it's in verse 5 to the end of the chapter that we have the seeking for a mediator. So Esther finds out about this problem. She finds out that Mordecai is mourning and she doesn't know what it's about. And she apparently hadn't heard about this law. And that's not really a surprise because ancient harems were pretty secure places. You didn't just have, you know, newsmen coming in and out of there. Uh, It's so secure even Mordecai can't come and see her. He and Esther are communicating with her servants actually to get this... uh, uh, train of letters back and forth, basically. So Esther's not heard about the plan. Mordecai's not being comforted. She asks, why are you doing this? Why are you mourning like this? And Mordecai explains to her, he says, well, verses 7 and 8, Mordecai told him, that is her servant, all that had happened to him, 
and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. So Mordecai explains to her, he gives her a copy of the law, the, the, the edict, and he says, look, this is what's going to happen. Here's the backstory. Here's why Haman's doing this. Here's that spiritual battle that I've been talking about. And further, let me show you how serious Haman is about enacting this plan by describing to you the exact sum of money that he bribed the king with to get this piece of legislation into effect. Which, as you remember uh, from two weeks ago, if you do, was two-thirds of the entire tax revenue. Right, so... Just to put that in modern numbers so you can get the idea, right? The United States brought in $3.5 trillion in 2019. That's how much tax revenue the government made, right? Well, Haman showed up at the king's court, and he's like, Hey, king, I will give you a little over $2 trillion if you let me enact this decree to kill the Jews. I mean, you talk about a bribe. That's a bribe right there. Uh, Haman is serious about winning this spiritual battle. And so that's what Mordecai explains to Esther, the gravity of this situation. Now, Esther responds because what Mordecai says is, Esther, here's the gravity of the situation. Go plead with the king. Get him to change this. See what you can do. Is there anything you can do? And Esther says, you know, Mordecai, I'm not really the best guy or the best girl for this situation. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, she appeals to Persian law. And this law that she's talking about, by the way, is not made up. This is real history. This law is documented in the Persian records. And the law that Esther refers to here, she says, you know, no one is allowed to go to the king and talk with him. No one's allowed to talk with him. The only people that can actually talk face-to-face with the king are his very limited, specific royal officials. They're the only ones that can talk to him. And part of that was to sort of help with the efficiency of running the empire, since it was a massive empire of 127, I think, provinces. So massive empire. But it was also because ancient, ancient cultures liked to really elevate their king because they wanted to preserve his power and authority. So if you can say, You're, none of you are worthy to talk to the king. Rather, he's like this mysterious figure in the palace. Well, then you're going to start to really think, Uh, a little more highly of him than you ought to. So the point is, we want to elevate the king, make him as great as possible. So no one can talk to him except his specific royal officials. And that includes, that is the people that can't talk to him, includes even his wives. Even his wives can't talk to him. So Esther is all hauled up in the harem. She's not allowed to talk to the king. And she says, look, it's illegal for me to just waltz into the palace and say, hey, hubby, I got a little suggestion for you. I have this you know, request for you. No, that's illegal. That will not go over very well. The punishment for that is death. That's a serious law. But then she also says at the end of verse 11, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now you remember... At the end of chapter 2, when Esther becomes queen, you remember how excited Ahasuerus was to make her queen. He thought she was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. He made her queen on the spot after her one-night stand interview to get the job. And he threw this massive banquet, this massive party for her. And he got tax breaks for the whole kingdom. I mean, there's just this massive celebration. He was so happy 
to have her in place of Vashti. And now some time has passed. And Esther says, look, Mordecai, not only is this illegal, but the king just doesn't really seem to be that infatuated with me anymore. He doesn't think that highly of me at the moment. I obviously haven't been on his mind. He hasn't called me in for a whole month. And so what Esther's doing is she's saying, look, I'm not a good candidate for this mediatorial role that you are asking of me. It's illegal, and the king doesn't seem to like me. So, sorry, Mordecai, you're going to have to find somebody else. And that's when Mordecai responds in verses 13 and 14. Really, I think you could say these, are, these verses are almost the crux of the whole book of Esther, right here. And Mordecai responds with thorough biblical wisdom. He says in verse 13, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Two things Mordecai says right here. Two things. First thing he says is, don't be a selfish coward. That's basically what he's saying. Don't be a selfish coward. Look, he says, do you think, he's speaking to Esther here, he says, do you think, really, Esther, that if you continue to pretend not to be a Jew, you continue to hide your identity and you just pretend to be this Persian queen, do you really think that's not going to catch up with you? No, they're going to find out. And you are going to die along with your father's house. This is actually quite a a verbal slash because, remember, uh, Esther's parents died when she was young. And Mordecai raised her. So he's basically saying, yeah, if you don't, you're not going to get away with this. You're going to die like your dead parents. That's pretty strong language. Now, don't be a selfish coward. And why? Here's why. Because if you keep silent at this time, God's going to save his people another way. He doesn't need you. This is your opportunity to be faithful, but you know what? God is going to fulfill his promises, Mordecai says. He will protect his people. Relief and deliverance is going to come. God doesn't need you. See, you you see the profound faith of Mordecai here. As As he explains to Esther, God will save us. So if God's sovereign, he's going to accomplish this. But then he says, Esther, listen. Who knows whether you have been placed here for such a time as this. And he's speaking sort of tongue-in-cheek there because what he's saying is God has orchestrated your life so that you would be in this position to be the mediator to save his people. God in his providence, God in his sovereignty, God in his great orchestration has done this and put you in this position to do his will. Now, Hold the phone here for a second, because you remember how Esther got to this position. You remember that? What did she do? Was this the ideal life for a young Jewish girl who followed the law of God? Well, not exactly. First of all, she pretended not to be a believer in God. She pretended not to be a Jew. She pretended to be a Persian. She took a pagan name for herself. She worked hard in the harem, not a place where a young Jewish girl should be. 
Uh, she had her one-night stand with the king. She impressed him so much that he crowned her queen on the spot. That's not exactly a saintly activity. And yet Mordecai here is still saying that God had sovereignly orchestrated all of it. And this is something of what we call the mystery of providence. And it's something our confession talks about, the Westminster Confession. Right? It says in chapter 3, paragraph 1, and I think this is very biblical, God, from all eternity, has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He's ordained everything, including sin. But the confession adds a very important qualifier that we have to grasp. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And yet he does it in such a way so that God is not the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now you say, uh, you lost me there, contingency, second causes, what are you talking about? Well, just clear away the theological language for a second. Basically all it's saying is that God is sovereign over everything, and man is responsible for what he does. God is sovereign over everything, and man is responsible for what he does. The scripture teaches both of these truths. And the precise philosophical details about how these things exactly intertwine together is quite honestly above the human capacity. But what Mordecai is doing here is he is expressing these truths. He's saying, God has orchestrated your entire life to this moment. And now you're responsible. It is time to step up. And Esther responds positively here. She responds positively. She says, all right, you go tell the Jews to, to fast for three days. I and my midwives are going to do that. And then, verse 16, I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. The Hebrew of that verse is a little bit stronger than that, just uh, so you know, um, when she says, and if I perish, I perish. You know, she's not saying like, well, you know, if, if it's a slight possibility that I die, then I guess I'll die. No. Really, she's saying, when I perish, I perish. In other words, there is no doubt in her mind that she's going to die. She is going to be the mediator for God's people. She's going to be willing to lay her life down to save them. Now, when I hear um, texts like this, Esther courageously coming before the king, or you know, David courageously going before Goliath, or Daniel courageously going before Nebuchadnezzar, or whatever other famous text we want to use. Oftentimes when I hear these kinds of things preached and taught, the application drawn from these texts is something like, you know, hey, you see David, he went and he slayed Goliath? Great. You see how faithful he was? You're David. Be like David. What are the giants in your life? Are they anger? Well, you've got to take up your sling of faith and go strike down that giant of anger. Is that giant in your life lust? Well, take up your sling of faith and go strike down that giant of lust. Now, there's a certain place for that. 
Because the scriptures do use stories. They use historical accounts here to teach us moral lessons. And so there is a sense here in which I can say, you know what? A application of this text is be like Esther. Because it is true that God has sovereignly orchestrated your life and my life and has put us in specific positions to do His will. And we need to be responsible to step up and do what God's calling us to do. Maybe He's placed you as a parent. Maybe He's placed you as a grandparent. Maybe He's orchestrated your life so that you have some kind of position of political authority or business authority or family authority. Now, where has God placed you, and what are you being called to do? That's a real application here, and I don't want to minimize that or say it's not legitimate. But, you know, if I were to say, be like Esther, and then concluded the sermon there and said, all right, that's, that's good enough, it'd be something like, you know, walking into an art exhibit and looking at a painting on the wall and just being like, wow, look at this painting. This, this thing is so amazing. Look at this frame. Oh, look, it's, it's etched. It has got this beautiful, like, wavy texture to it, and it's varnished, and it's got this nice wood. Look at this beautiful picture frame. But then I can guarantee you anybody standing next to me in that art exhibit is going to be like, bro, what are you doing looking at the picture frame? I mean, yeah, it's nice. It's important. But that's not the point. Look at the painting. And so if we focused on be like Esther, that's not really the genuine application of this passage because that would be like looking at the picture frame. Rather, Jesus actually tells us the meaning of this passage. In Luke chapter 24 and John chapter 5, Jesus explains what the Old Testament is actually about. In fact, he tells his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 that the Old Testament most fundamentally most clearly, and most importantly, is about him. Now, you think he skipped the book of Esther? No, I don't think so. I think what Jesus means is exactly what he means. The Old Testament is about Jesus. And it's here in Esther chapter 4 that we actually see one of the clearest presentations of Jesus in this book. Because just like Jesus... Right? And just like us, really. Just like, let me, let me back up here for a second. Like the Jews in this passage who are mourning over a situation that they themselves have put themselves in by their own sin and by their own stubbornness, so that is who we are. We are the people of God who by our sin and stubbornness and our love of the world and our love of the flesh, we have put ourselves in a position where we have incurred upon ourselves the judgment of God. And when we cry out to God, when we mourn in our own spiritual sackcloth and ashes, God provides a mediator. When we cry out to Him, He provides the mediator. He provides someone to save us. For the Jews here, He provided Esther, someone who was willing to lay down her life for God's sheep. And it's of that pattern that Jesus follows. But you see, Jesus is not identical to Esther because Esther doesn't actually die. I'm sorry, spoiler alert, right? She doesn't actually die. She survives and she saves the people. She was willing to lay down her life, but she didn't actually die. But Jesus, on the other hand, is a greater mediator because Jesus was not only willing to die, 
But Jesus actually did die. He died for you. He laid down his life in one of the most, probably the most actually, horrific death physically. And certainly the most horrific death spiritually in the history of history. That is what Jesus did for you and for me. He did that to save us, really, from ourselves. To save us from our own sinfulness. To save us from the judgment of God that was coming. The date of the judgment of the wicked, folks, has been set by God, much like Haman's decree. God has set the date of the judgment for the wicked. But by the mediatorial work of Christ, functioning as the one who stands between us and the judgment, we are spared from that date of judgment, from the date of God's wrath. By faith in Christ, folks, we are in Christ. See, that's really what Esther's pointing to. There's a certain sense in which you are Esther. Be like Esther. But more fundamentally, you're not Esther. I'm not Esther. We're the Jews who cannot save ourselves. And Esther is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who saves us when we can't do anything to save ourselves. That's what Jesus says this text means. And I believe him. And praise God that Jesus is Esther. And that he's the one who saves me. And that he's the one who saves you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Let's pray and thank our God for that this morning. Oh God, we thank you for Esther. And Lord, we thank you for chapter 4 here this morning. As we see, we see our Savior manifest. Lord, we see that this text is primarily about our Lord Jesus. And how you always save your people. You always provide a mediator. You provide someone to stand between your people and judgment. And oh God, we thank you for this great truth. Lord, we pray that we would never think that we don't need Jesus. Or that we would think that we can stand up and save ourselves. Lord, we can't. We're like the Jews in this text. We've brought trouble upon ourselves. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We are under your wrath and curse. But Lord, we thank you that Jesus took that wrath and curse for us on the cross. And he paid our sins in full so that we might be justified and saved. Oh Lord, the salvation that our mediator Christ has brought is so much greater than Esther the mediator. For Esther brought a salvation that was temporal. That was limited to a specific moment in history. But God... Jesus, the greater mediator, has brought us a salvation that's not limited to a point in time, but that is not limited at all, that is everlasting. And, oh God, we thank you for that this morning, and we pray that you would encourage us in that truth and that we would love what your word teaches us. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response this morning is number 253, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, number 253. Please stand as we sing this morning.